0: Now, Jeff is a Marine veteran, then transitioned into law enforcement, serving in multiple details, including SWAT and the gang unit. So we discuss a host of topics from his transition from the military to law enforcement, to an officer involved shooting he was involved with, and the nonprofit 911 at ease, where he's bringing mental health solutions to the first responder community. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on. Subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every five-star rating helps elevate this podcast, making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library for you, planet Earth. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said... I introduce to you, Jeff McGreevy. Enjoy. Well, Jeff, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today.
1: Hey, it's awesome to be here, man. I've, I've heard a lot about you, and we've talked on the phone a few times, and it's, it's great to be on your show and share some stories.
0: Beautiful. Well, where on planet Earth are we finding you today?
1: I am in Southern California, so I'm in Ventura County um, along the coast. Ventura County is halfway between L.A. and Santa Barbara.
0: Brilliant. All right, well, I love to start at the very beginning chronologically, so tell me where you were born, and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did, and how many siblings.
1: Very interesting. So uh, I was born in Long Island, New York, in a Islip. And uh, I had a, an interesting childhood that uh, my parents got divorced when I was very young. So I spent a lot of my youth growing up with my grandparents. So my grandfather became my father figure because I spent a lot of time with him. But, uh, by the time I was in kindergarten, I was living at my grandparents' house and, you know, I didn't fully understand what was going on with my family. But what I found learned later in life is that my, my father was an alcoholic and, uh, he was verbally abusive and sometimes physically abusive. And, um, I have very, few memories of my father, like just a couple of flash bulbs, because when I was about six or seven, he was in a car accident. He got drunk at a bar and the road bent to the left and he went straight and crashed into a telephone pole and ended up spending the rest of his life in a convalescent home because of uh, traumatic brain injury and, and partial paralysis. So he was out of my life pretty young. And then I was I was living with my grandparents in Long Island town called Melville, which is in Suffolk County, New York. And uh, I lived there till I was in fourth grade. Um, I, have, uh, I have two brothers, so I have one brother from where, uh, when we lived in New York, my mom remarried when I was in fourth grade, and that's when we moved to California, and that's when everything kind of really, my life got turned upside down because I got uprooted from my entire family when I was in fourth grade and moved to California with someone that I didn't even know that was my stepfather. And uh, we moved to Ventura County. He worked for Grumman Aerospace, and uh, he worked at There's a Navy base out here called Point Magoo, and he got transferred to the to that base. And we landed in in Oxnard, California. And uh, I went from, uh, you know, having a stable home life and a lot of family, you know, around the people that you call aunts and uncles that they're not really your aunts and uncles. But as far as you know, they're your aunts and uncles these cast of characters that were my grandparents' friends. And then we were out here in California by ourselves with, with living with a guy that I barely knew.
0: So with with that move, you know, you had your your biological part you didn't know very well. So you had that tribe. You had the actual blood relatives with your grandparents. You had the extended family of aunts and uncles. And I, I grew up with the same kind of thing. Um, and then you're plucked. So you're taken not only from... You know your your actual biological parents, but all those other support structures that village that was banding around to raise you. So tell me about that at fourth grade age. What was that change like for you? Well, you
1: went into a school where you didn't know anybody, and um, and then my my mom and her new husband um, they only lasted for two years. Um, they they were divorced probably in two years, and he was you know, he, he didn't really do anything for me. He was, you know, he was around a little bit. And then, um, but, but growing up, my mom, you know, I, I really admire what my mom did because my mom didn't want to go back home. She wanted to try and stand up on her own and have her own life and, 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 you know, take care of her kids. So at, you know, at one point she had three jobs. She was, uh, she worked as a teller at a, a bank on, on the Navy base. She was at the credit union she had a newspaper route, so she would wake up in the morning and uh, go deliver newspapers. And then she tried things like, you know, being the Tupperware lady. She was, you know, having Tupperware parties and trying to do some network marketing type things. So, um, and she was just trying to make it. She was always trying to make it. We we were on welfare. I, you know, I don't know if you've ever heard those stories about having some some government cheese in your in your refrigerator. And and there was a few times where we had the, that government cheese in the in the refrigerator makes the best grilled cheese sandwich that you've ever had in your life. (laughs) Cutting a thick slice of that. It's literally a brick of cheese, you know. It's probably uh, never even
0: seen a cow though, huh? (laughs) Who knows what it was made of?
1: (laughs) uh, Who knows what that thing was made of? And, uh, but, uh, you know, and then because my mom worked minimum two jobs, sometimes she was going out and um, doing other things at night, like 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 a jo- I joke about being a Tupperware lady, but you know she's out trying to do stuff like that. My my brothers and I, um, we didn't have a lot of supervision, and so um, they had a a thirst. So I, I have a, a half brother, and um, he he came from that second relationship. So you know, I was ten, eleven years old, and we were babysitting a one year old, and you know, me and my brother were helping take care of our our little brother. And, uh, you know, we didn't have a lot of supervision. Yeah. So we, we ran all over the place.
0: <laughs> so what did the, the kind of high school years look like then? You, you didn't really have a father figure, which, you know, some young men and women thrive regardless of that. But I think a lot of us agree that, that two, two partners raising a child is, is an ideal scenario. So, you know, did you stay on, on a good path? Did you, did you happen to be around the right people? or Did you find yourself in some unusual areas?
1: Yeah, in high school, I found myself. Um, I, I had no interest in, in school really. When I, I'll, I'll, I'll kind of, so I lived with my grand, I got the opportunity to go back and live with my grandparents for one year in my ni- ninth grade, which in New York, seventh, eighth, and ninth grade is considered part of junior high school, but out in California, most places, ninth through twelfth is traditional high school. So I got, I convinced my mom to let me go live with my grandparents for a year. And I think it's, you know, we're talking about 35 years ago, but I'm sure I just wanted to go home. Like I wanted to, we missed our grandparents. We missed our, our family. And I convinced my mom to let me live with my grandparents for one year. And I went back and I was back in this stable, you know, my grandfather was a World War II veteran. He was a, he was in the Marine Corps. And my grandma was, you know, the sweetest lady, you know, you'd ever met. But she actually had a big voice too. She wasn't afraid to give you a scream down, you know, when, when you needed it. But I was back with those people that were, they had a house and they had, um, they took you places and you could go eat, eat out and have dinner and they had nice friends. And, um, you know, all my family was there. And, um, then after a year, my mom made me come home. So I was in the stable environment again. And my mom basically said, you need to come home. You can't stay there. So I came home for 10th grade. And when I came home, um, I wasn't a troublemaker, but I didn't do good in school. And I, I was, I ditched more than I was in attendance at school. And I, um, you know, I I sometimes I hung around with the wrong kids, but you know, two good things happened when I was in high school. Is that from a very young age, I wanted to join the Marine Corps, and uh, I'm I know a lot of that had to do with my grandfather, and um, so I got a I got a letter from the from the you know the veterans out there. I'll get a kick out of this. I have I still have this letter, and it says, "Thank you for your interest in the United States Marine Corps, but because you're only 14 years old." you're going to have to wait a couple more <laughs> years. And they sent me a sticker. So I got a sticker, and, but, um, but I kept that letter and I, I found it a few years ago. But what I did is I, I, I knew I was going to go in the military. And, um, and then the other great thing that happened to me is that in 11th grade, I met the the woman that I would be in love with for the rest of my life. And I'm still married to my high school sweetheart. And, you know, she found this troubled kid that went to a different school and she went to private school. I went to public school and, we met um because i actually had moved out of my mom's house i was um living with my friend for a few days that lived across the street from her and that's how i met her and you know we've been going out since 1986 when we were in 11th grade but um but i i knew i i knew i wanted to go in the service i wanted to as i grew i was a terrible student i was ditching school all the time i was i was failing i was you know i was in jeopardy of even graduating from high school it was so bad and um there was a teacher that saved my life in a way, and I'm you know, i not trying to exaggerate, but I joined the Marine Corps and it got time to get close to graduation and I wasn't gonna graduate. And we had to convince my English teacher to give me a D instead of an F so that I could graduate. I had to prove to her that I had joined the military and the only reason that she agreed to give me a D it's because we proved that I had joined the military and, you know, she said, okay, I'm going to give you a D because I think the military is going to straighten you out. Excuse me. But it was, um, it was, you know, a lot of things kind of lined up. And then when I, when I joined the the military, my life kind of took off in a positive way and I grew up and my wife and I got married, um, you know, and then later on I became a policeman.
0: Beautiful. Well, going back to, the influence because obviously there's a couple of key key people that that forged that path for you one was your granddad one was the teacher that you know gave you a chance and I think those mentor figures you know those those uh second chances in life are very important for a lot of these childhood stories that didn't start off you know in an environment that enabled them to thrive so with you finding yourself in a mental health space on the other side of your law enforcement career do you ever remember your grandfather discussing World War II or exhibiting any kind of, uh, you know, PTS-style issues after? Because that's a generation that didn't really talk that much about it.
1: My grandfather would never talk about it. So what I knew about my grandfather is that he had what they call shell shock. And I think that's before the term PTS or um, any of that terms existed <clears throat> my aunts and uncles who were his age. Um, they said, um, they said when you when his name was Charlie, when Charlie came back from the war, he wasn't the same person and he had shell shock. And I didn't quite understand what that meant, but stories that my mom told me is that my grandfather slept uh, in his room and he had his hands across his chest in an X with his wrist, his forearms over his heart. And he told my mom when she was little, she said that um, they slept that way so that if the Japanese got into their camp and they tried to stab them, that they at least their heart was protected while they were sleeping. So he was in the, the first raider battalion, was, which was in the, the beginnings of, I don't know if you call it the special forces of the Marine Corps. You know, now it's Marine Force Recon, <clears throat> but he was in the first raider battalion. And the only thing that he would ever tell me about um, uh, the military um Was that he was in a couple of raids where they came in on some small boats. And uh, the thing that he told me before I went to boot camp is he looked me in the eye and he said, don't volunteer for anything. (laughs) (laughs) But what I what what I saw from what my mom told me was that um, also going back to she, she there was a few times that things happened when they woke him up when he was sleeping where he came up fighting, meaning, you know, he was, you startled him. And so they learned, you know, don't startle dad when he's asleep. And this, this, this peculiar way that he, he slept sometimes where he had his hands across his chest and you fast forward 50 years, you know, to his grandson. And I had very similar incidents happen with my children a couple of times where they woke me up when I was asleep and, and I came up, um, Feel, you know, feeling like I was under attack, you know, that I woke up, somebody shook me and I didn't hurt them. But I was if I would have grabbed them, I probably would have put them through the wall if I would have got my hands because I just I I had eventually got PTS myself from from the job.
0: Yeah. Well, it's it's so interesting. And sadly, we've lost so many World War II vets. So I'm still trying to get someone from that era on. I just had a major uh, Jim Capers on from Vietnam era who's 84 now. And this is a, this is a constant through line. It was an issue when you look back in time, you had soldier's heart, you had, you know, shell shock, you had the thousand yard stare. Now we call it PTS. It's the same exact thing. And especially in the Vietnam era where they had no way of offloading it. You know, the, the World War II vets had the ticker tape parades and the welcome homes in general. I'm sure some of them didn't, but, but the Vietnam vets were spat on and called baby killers a lot of times. So they didn't even get to process what they'd been through so yeah it's very very interesting hearing you know stories of that generation, well, with you joining the Marines, were you an athlete during high school age
1: i I played football and i you know i I was one of those i I always loved baseball when I was a kid, and um I tried off I told you i was i didn't I wasn't doing good in school and um, I never played organized sports when I was young because my mom couldn't afford to pay for little league or you know youth football and so when I got into high school um i i started playing football and i wasn't that good i was on the team you know and but um when i tried out for the baseball team i made the baseball team i'd never played organized baseball in my life and i made the team and because i didn't have a good enough grade at grade point average i couldn't i wasn't allowed to be on the team so that was a you know a you know setback for me um but I, i played um jv and varsity football and I uh, played tight end and did a little blocking, um, caught some passes. And I was always, I was always, uh, the second string kid. I was, I was an average build, but the, the guy that was playing in front of me was six, five and weighed 50 pounds more than I did. So, you know, I could never get the starting position, but I got to play. And then, um, uh, when I got into the Marine Corps, I was just, you know, average regular Joe. Like I was young though. I was 17. I joined the Marines when I was 17. I turned 18 in boot camp, um, So I was, you know, as a young man was, uh, was fit. And, um, but then uh, later in my life, I, I kept trying to play baseball. So like when I get on the, the base team and, and, uh, you know, go out and play catcher or something like that and just kind of learn how to play because I didn't play organized uh, baseball, but I just wanted to try.
0: Beautiful. Well, tell me about The transition for you personally, then, as you said, you didn't have a lot of guidance and mentorship in your kind of early to late teens. So what did that Marine Corps experience do for you personally?
1: You know, it definitely um, I definitely grew up and there's I didn't know what I was doing. Uh, I didn't have a good mentor to help. You know, my grandfather had been in the Marine Corps 40 years ago, you know, before I went in. And so when I went in, I just knew I was going to join, but I didn't know what to do. And my mom was telling me like, hey, you should try and get a job where when you get out of the military, you'll have some kind of a skill, you know, so I couldn't make up my mind. And I just finally went in open contract, which means, you know, no, no guarantee, which is kind of the stupidest thing that you can do really because I could have been a cook. I could have been a truck driver. I could have been anything, you know, it's just based on the need. And I ended up, um, being, being a, um, an admin clerk, but, um, I got my job. Got chosen by based on where I was standing in a parking lot. I was in a group of about 200 people, and there were three jobs you can get. And based on where I was, they like divided the group in three groups, and they said, "Okay, you go with staff sergeant so and so. You guys go with this." And that's how we got our job. And then uh, when I got out of a school. um, I got I stayed at Camp Pendleton and um, I just showed up I sat at a little shack and a bus came and picked me up I had no idea where I was going and um, there was a helicopter squadron that had a vacancy so they sent me to this air wing and then I sat at the wing and then there was a squadron that was just rotating back from Okinawa Japan and, <clears throat> excuse me and they plugged me into that helicopter squadron. And it was just all by chance, like um, based on what day you got there or sometimes where you were standing is how what what your job was for the rest. could could have been for the rest of your life. But I ended up in a uh, HMLA 367, which is Marine Light Attack Helicopter Squadron 367. And um, if you if you've listened to some of the the SOG journals, with John Stryker Meyer or some other people where they talk about the secret mission in Cambodia and and Laos. Um, Scarface in Vietnam was one of the, the helicopter squadrons that was, was fighting that secret war and and helping them. But uh, I, I stayed at Camp Pendleton for most of my time. Um, I I, I did one pump over to Okinawa, Japan. And then uh, when desert storm happened, we went to Saudi Arabia and then into Kuwait for the, for the, uh, Gulf War in in ninety and ninety one, but going back to I guess your your question was like you know how did it shape me? Is that I started becoming a man and you're around people that are very serious and they hold you they have standards and they hold you to those standards and you have a job and now you have responsibilities and you're part of a. Uh, a multi-multi million dollar operation um, where they take their work very seriously, and it was interesting being around pilots because you know I was this dumb idiot that barely graduated from high school, and you had some people that graduated from the Naval Academy, and and um, you know obviously all the pilots, the officers were all college educated, and you know seeing the caliber of people that were that were in our military was was really impressive, and uh, I just wanted to serve It's really. You know, why did I do it? I wanted to serve my country. Is the number one answer.
0: Beautiful. Well, again, a rare perspective. Not many people on here, you know, were were in that first Gulf War. So you went through the training. You obviously, you know, started growing as an individual. You get deployed to an actual combat zone. What I like to ask anyone who's seen combat is is, and I preface it by this: no more evident than this last year the polarization of our media and i think the same during war you get either kill them all let god sort them out mentality or you get baby killer mentality and in the middle are all the men and women the children that we've thrown a uniform on and sent to go fight a war for us while we sit and eat our fast food and watch jerry springer so what i like to do is is ask the people there when you deployed was there an aha moment where you saw, regardless of politics, whatever sent you to that particular war zone, that you saw um, that there were some horrible people doing some horrible things to you know to the natives of that country, and that that kind of made you realize, okay, that regardless of politics, we are here doing a good thing at this moment.
1: And it was, and you know, in that particular war, and I, and I'm not. Although I'm a veteran, I'm not a combat veteran. So I just wanted to clarify that for everyone's listening. And, and um, you know, our helicopters went over there and, and did all the um, support for the infantry and other missions. But um, what I saw was a, a bunch of red blooded Americans who um, went over to Saudi Arabia and in, into Kuwait because that country was invaded. So that one, there was that clear act of aggression where the Iraqi army in, invaded one of our allies and we were there and and they were murdering people they were killing people they took over this area they were kidnapping people um it was a brutal brutal thing that was happening and um and then uh some of the most amazing photographs i have are of the oil fields burning and the the eco-terrorism that was being committed when they started lighting all the the oil fields on fire and that was you know, the internet wasn't there and you, you literally had to read a newspaper to see what was happening there. Were, and cause you know, where we were, I had heard, um, you know, when we went over there, uh, I told you, I, I was, I was an administration person. So when we went there, I was like, I don't want to sit here and be in this war, you know, in the rear with the gear. So I volunteered for door gunner duty and they were putting combat crews together to, to be door gunners in the Hueys. So I went through a little training for that. And then you know, that was my way of like, that's the only way you're going to get into something is by um, getting on one of those Hueys. So I, I I volunteered for the door gunner duty. Uh, I I didn't do any combat missions. I did a couple of missions that were non-combat, but uh, the day of the ceasefire, uh, I had an opportunity to, to fly from a base called Tanajib, which was in the Northern part of Kuwait near the border. And then we flew into uh, Kuwait and to pick up the Uh, General commanding general of 1st Marine Division, and we left our base, and you see this dark cloud ahead of you. And they said that these oil fields are burning, but you can't understand what that looks like. You can't, there's no, this is something that we've probably never seen before, so I just can't even process this to, to imagine what it looks like. And as we're flying toward Kuwait, the sky is getting darker and darker and darker and darker, and then we get into, and we're literally flying in these oil fields where there is a black cloud that's blocking out all light above you, and it's like you're, it's like it's midnight, and there's these these fires that are burning all around you. And the most amazing experience of my life, I think, was we were figurating through these, we're flying through these fires. And when the doors are open on the, on the helicopter, you can hear the rumbling of that burning that when as a fire as a former fireman, you had, you know, that roar of the fire, you could hear it as you got close to it and you could feel the heat from these fires. And there was thousands of them that were burning. And to see that uh, actually fly through it was one of the most, I was only 21 years old when this is happening also um, was probably one of the most significant things of my life. That I couldn't believe that this, these, they did this, and what's going to happen? What is this? Uh, what is this going to do? But, um, but anyway, got to spend um, a day or two in Kuwait City after the ceasefire, and um, we had a, the, you know, the one exciting thing that happened on that helicopter is that we had to make an emergency landing in Kuwait City because uh, something blew in the transmission and uh, we and we had to do a slide on which is basically sliding it was landing a helicopter like an airplane and um these guys were, the the transmission was going to fail at any moment and they were they were afraid that we were going to start losing power and we were flying over power lines and bill we're in the city we're in kuwait city and it's only been clear for one day and we come like we we landed on a soccer field in the middle of a courtyard of a bunch of buildings by ourselves no infantry support We landed in this area by ourselves, and when we shut down the aircraft, a bunch of guys start walking towards us with AK-47s, but they had their other hand up waving at us. And um, this guy's wearing, like, slacks and a button-down shirt with an AK-47 in one hand and saying, hey, we're part of the – Kuwaiti Liberation Force and we're going to protect you. And they set a perimeter around the helicopters while we were waiting for, you know, our guys to come and and protect us. It was an amazing experience. Amazing experience.
0: Yeah, well, I think that's it. You said about not being a combat veteran. Well, just like firefighters, there's only a handful of us that ever found a person in a house and successfully pulled them out and got on TV with our sooty faces and got a medal a few weeks later. But everyone goes into that door being prepared to do the same thing. So, I mean, you know, the action that you saw, the risks that you and your crew took were, you know, the same as anyone else. Just some people had to happen to actually see combat. So with, I mean, that there's a pretty, you know, incredible moment to be a part of tell me about your decision to transition out of the marines and then and then getting into law enforcement
1: i had a couple of guys that i was in the service with that either were reserve police officers like we were i was at camp pendleton so there was a couple guys they were much older than i was and there this guy was a reserve police officer with oceanside pd which is the neighboring police department at camp pendleton and then there was a guy that from New Mexico that had been a cop for a few years in New Mexico. And then he came back in the military. And then there was another guy that, um, he had been shot while he was a police officer. He was a reserve police officer and he got ambushed, um, in the bathroom of a Denny's of all place. Um, in, uh, and a guy, a bad guy was, he didn't know it, but when, uh, when they parked their car, there was a criminal in the Denny's and he went in the bathroom. Well, the officer went in there to go use the men's room and the bad guy was inside the stall next to him and shot him in the back as he ran out the door. And so that guy was somebody that I worked with, too. So I had these couple few people that had some law enforcement experience and it started making me think, could that be a possibility of uh, and I had decided I was going to get out of the military because I had a young son. And some of the influences I was also around were some career guys that. Um, very like we, my Sergeant major was a, a Vietnam veteran and a legit combat veteran who was a, a tank commander. And, um, he had stories for days and days and days, but he also spent most of his time away from his family being, going overseas all the time. And, and I had just, I had a young son. I, you know, my, I didn't grow up with a father and now I was a, I was a father and I wanted to not be away from my family family, meaning, you know, for a year at a time or this constant thing. So I said, well, maybe I'll start looking at a police officer because I I had some my military experience and and I wanted to really just continue to serve is what my thought process was, is that I served my country. Maybe now I can go back and serve my community is what what my thought process was. And again, I didn't know what I was doing because I didn't have really a mentor to help get hired as a police officer I didn't have somebody to you know like help me through the process or tell me what to do and not to do and that's kind of a you know an interesting story there <laughs>
0: yeah, well that's let's, let's unwrap that but just before you do that's a really interesting kind of insight because one of the the themes that comes up a lot and and I've had some guests on that have been this exact solution to the problem but when you talk about some of the the issues we see, whether it's diversity in a first responder profession, whether it's uh, um, the siloing of professions versus community, one of the most progressive and effective solutions are mentor programs, whether it's a, in a law enforcement program. A friend of mine, Chris Hickman, started a firefighter one here. So, so successful they remove the barrier to entry. Your barrier to entry of of playing sports as a young man was being able to afford the fees and the the uniform and the protective gear. Well, the same in the fire service. You know, if you got someone who, of of any color or creed who grows up with the inability to pay how are they gonna buy or rent bunker gear and go to fire academy and all these things so they get together with local departments it's a beautiful synchronistic relationship between the city and the county here which most people listening those two don't entities don't play nicely with each other which blows my mind but um but they do and they've created this environment where someone like yourself whether it's a teenager whether it's someone younger wants to enter a profession they don't know how they're going to do it well those programs not only will guide you through but also they remove any financial barrier as long as you can physically show up to that fire station or police station at that time you will be guided by experienced professionals you will be given the gear there are scholarships for fire school or police academy and to me that's that's exactly what we need because we have so many great potential responders out there that never ever get the chance to to follow that dream it's
1: such an amazing thing to have for someone to have an opportunity like that, because like you said, removing the bear, I told you I couldn't play Little League or youth sports because, you know, my mom couldn't afford to, to buy the equipment. And for someone that has a heart that wants to serve a young person that, you know, maybe they were inspired by a firefighter or a policeman in their neighborhood or a paramedic that they wanted to go up. And I, I want to do that. Or they maybe they have a family member or they just want to serve their community. Um, to be able to pursue that dream uh, is is an amazing opportunity. And I I wish more, I wish we had more of that stuff out here. One of the things that I did see that I'll just use in the police and fire does it is they have an Explorer program. So young people, can start to get mentored by firefighters or police officers and learn a bit about the job and they'll either love it or they'll hate it. They'll either want to grow up and go, yeah, I absolutely want to do this. And um, and they'll also have an edge because they are they get to hang around with firefighters and kind of learn a bit about what goes on and, and you know, see that the rewards of, of doing a, a noble profession like that. Um, so it's 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 pretty neat to see the kids that they were around us at 14, 15 years old. Then they become a cadet, and next thing you know, they're they're working patrol with you. You know, yeah. Ten years
0: later. <laughs> well, exactly. And then I've had guests like um, Craig Hunaomi, who's the known as the skateboarding cop, um, and then Pat Russo, who founded the uh, New Yorks uh, NYPD Cops and Kids Boxing up in New York. So there's there's obviously the Explorer mentorship program, but then you have other roles that we play in the community to again steer you know young boys and girls of all backgrounds into. Channeling their energy in a positive way, learning to be a kind, strong, compassionate—you know—man or woman through a medium, whether it's a profession or whether it's a sport.
1: Yeah, and also learning that this is a profession. You know, firefighters are are professional firefighters, and police officers are professional police officers. And it takes a lot of training, it takes a lot of dedication because you make some pretty big decisions. When you know, as I graduated the academy when I was twenty-two years old. And, you know, you're you're dealing with some pretty significant problems sometimes. And, you know, as you evolve through your career, you just become a professional. You just understand how to handle situations and read people. And, um, you know, it, it's pretty neat to you know, kind of see the evolution of how things played out.
0: Absolutely. Well, you said about there was a funny story about how you actually got in. So, so what was that journey like for you specifically?
1: So in 1991 i was still in, i was still in the military so I, I came in right after rodney king so the rodney king incident was the biggest thing probably happening in america at that time and that's where the a, a man that was uh, that was assaulted by some lapd officers during an arrest and it became famous because of this video that somebody took from the balcony you know who saw the uh the takedown the arrest and uh i I had decided that I wanted to become a police officer so what I did is I opened up the Sunday paper and that's how you found jobs back then and the classifieds of my local newspaper is had four police departments that were announcing their test dates and they were little tiny like you know two or three inch ads in the in the classifieds in the newspaper so I called all the ads and made appointments to go take the tests (coughs) excuse me and one of so I, I, I passed all the tests and um, then there was there was two departments that had conflicting dates and I had no idea what I was doing. I hadn't researched benefits, I didn't know how many people were in these police departments, I didn't know which one was better than the other. Um, benefits pay anything. I just was like following the classifieds to, okay, well, these police departments are hiring. So let me start, you know, calling and making appointments to, to go through the process. And on, the, on this date, on one of the testing dates, there was the Simi Valley police department and I think it was Santa Paula PD. And I looked at the thing and it said, well, the Simi Valley one pays a couple more dollars an hour. So I'll go take that test. And I ended up getting hired by the Simi Valley police department and that was a department that had 140 people, and they hired six people. And the Santa Paula PD was only like 20 cops, and they were hiring one person. And I had no idea, you know, how limited the scope was. Of I probably never would have gotten hired by Santa Paula PD but I pursued Simi Valley and the the town that I lived in was Oxnard and they were having a hiring freeze. So I couldn't apply. That was my hometown, Oxnard, California, which is in Ventura County. So I went with these other local departments. Um, I had contacted the sheriff's department and I was in Kuwait when the, when they had their interview process, but eventually was going through this whole process while I was in the military. And that's really what gave me my street creds is that, I was coming out of the military right after the war where we'd had a win and um, I had served during that conflict and I was squared away, I was 21 years old, um, I, you know, I interviewed well and uh, out of about you know, like 400 people that applied for that job, I ended up ranking fourth and one of the challenges was, I told you I barely graduated from high school, well I barely passed that written test. Once I, it was just pass fail, thank God. So I passed the written, and then I smoked the interviews, and and the other stuff was good. And then next thing I know, I'm just I I got through my background, and I was three weeks out of the military. I was in the police academy, which is
0: unheard of. Beautiful. Well, so that's a that's an unusual kind of um, portfolio to be bringing into the profession. It's an unusual time because it was one of the big. You know, the the magnifying glass was definitely put on law enforcement. I think if you reverse engineer what the streets of L.A. looked like prior to that, and and again, a topic that I will definitely get to, which I think is the illicit drug, uh, you know, the the decriminalisation of of addiction and how that created such a horrible. Um, you know, war on LA streets, which I think, you know, in part resulted in what we saw doesn't make it right by any means, but it wasn't like Dixon of Dot Green, they all just pulled out their truncheons and started beating someone to death. Um, you know, I think it was a, a horrific symptom of, of what the tension was like in there. Um, so you ended up doing basically three decades in law enforcement. So tell me what were those first few years like? And was there a contrast to what we're seeing right now?
1: I think the job is, you know, like I came in at a time where there was a lot of hostility toward the police, but then I, and I got a job with what was literally the safest city in America per capita, which is Simi Valley, California. And so the, that was not a really, a, I would say, a dangerous place to work. I mean, it's a safer community overall. It's kind of like Copland. A lot of cops and firefighters live there, but they worked in the big cities, the real busy areas. And the, the early years were, um, pretty good where I, you know, I, I learned how to do the job and I, I, me and my, my academy classmates were always competing with each other to get the most arrests and, uh, um, just be big because you're young, you're just active, you're, you're out there just, um, hunting all night long, looking for burglars or looking for drunk drivers or looking for, for, um, drug, drug offenders and, Um, three years into my career is when I got faced with some life and death stuff. And, um, I had an incident happen where I went to a, um, going back to Denny's, we're at Denny's again. I went to the call of a a subject that had a a knife at Denny's and I pull into the shopping center and I don't see anybody. And there's this group of people that run over to me in front of, and it's just dark. It was like eight or nine o'clock at night. They run over to me. There's a guy running around here. He's got a giant knife. And they're t- telling me this, and the girl points over my shoulder, and she goes, and he's right there. And I turn around, and I look toward the Denny's that was a, you know, maybe a hundred yards away from me, and I see this guy wearing nothing but a pair of underwear, and he looks, he sees that the cops are there, and he takes off in a full sprint towards me, and what I see is like something that you see in a movie i see the glint off of the blade of the knife that he's that he's got in his hand and they're just telling me like this dude's crazy he's running around he was chasing us with a knife and this guy just breaks for me and i'm probably 24 years old couple two three years out of the academy and there's a guy charging at me with a with a kitchen knife in his hand and um I drew a line in the sand and I don't know what stopped that guy, but every time the he got by the line, he stopped. And I don't know if there was some other power that told him you take one more step and you're a dead man. But um, this guy went from being a full sprint and we were screaming at him and yelling at him to, to put the the knife down. And, and it's like, I, and I've never shot anybody. I've never used deadly force against anybody at this point. I've just gone through my training. I'm doing my job and, and now it's like, man, this is gonna happen. And he he got to that line and he stopped and he we'd take a couple steps back and then the line kept moving, but he was within, he wasn't to where he could hurt us, but he, there'd be a line where if he if he starts, um, we're gonna have to use force. And after a, about a minute of this, he just threw the knife down and we took him into custody and I recognized him. I knew who he was. I had dealt with him before. You know, he had a drug problem. And he is somebody around town that we had dealt with before. I, once he got close to me, I, close enough to me, I, I knew who it was. And about two months later, I was in a, a Target shopping center on my day off, and I'm walking through the shopping center, and the the cart boy was this young man that I almost killed two months before, and he was shagging carts at the Target, and he's and he walked up to me and he said, "I'm sorry." About, I, I said, I'm sorry about what happened. He said, when I was running towards you, I recognized you and I didn't, wa- didn't want to hurt you. And so we'd had some kind of contact before. And this guy, he basically was trying to commit suicide. He was, he was going to run at the cops and try and force us to kill him. And he, he, he recognized me and just changed his mind. You know, we end up arresting him. We're taking him to mental health where I don't remember what we did because so long ago. But like you fast forward a few months and now he's he's living his life and he's got a job. He's doing something. And he apologized to me for what he did. Um, But then uh, the next thing that happened to me was 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 going to a a call where a, a guy was was armed with a rifle and he was trying to murder his family. And and that was and that was uh, that was that was when um uh, I was involved in a shooting and and um um and and stopped this guy. He pointed a rifle at his eleven year old son when he came out of the house, and luckily I was I was there to stop him.
0: So I mean this this to me seems like a very, very obvious answer to what I'm about to ask you, but it's never ever given any any time, I think, in any discussions that we see on television. When you take a step back, how many violent incidents or, you know, kind of what rough percentage of violent incidents that you responded to had an underlying element of mental health or addiction?
1: I think a lot of them. And so it's hard to put a percentage on that. You know, it's very difficult. But um, I saw a a lot of violence where some people were in the wrong place at the wrong time and they were victimized by someone that was – High on methamphetamine or something else, and um, the people whose homes were broken into by uh, by crazy people. But you know, and you mix mental health and you sprinkle some some crystal on top of that, and you have a powder keg. You've got somebody with some mental health challenges, and then now they're they're under the influence of a stimulant or something, and they can there can be very dangerous people. And I saw a lot of. Um, a lot of violence, you know, was alcohol related too. Where you've got people that were victimized by their own family, someone in their own family. There was, you know, domestic violence incidents. You know, both ways between men and women or children that were abused, um, and so so you have the alcohol component. Uh, a lot of the people that we, you know, would have to get into struggles with, unfortunately, had some kind of a mental health. You know, we're trying to take them to behavioral health or they maybe they've committed a crime and you, you end up getting in a tussle with those people. And it's never pretty to arrest somebody, you know, no matter how much training you have. A fight is a fight. And um, but but I always it was it was a tough thing when you saw just a good regular person like you and me that was in the wrong place at the wrong time. And um, you know a, a viper was nearby and and victimized them.
0: Yeah. Well, you talked about the you know, the near miss you had with the the man with the knife, and obviously we'll get to the shooting in a minute. But obviously now we had that that incident where that woman was actively stabbing another woman, and the officer responded and and you know had to take her life. What is what is your lens on? How the public perceive a knife. I mean, I've done, you know, a lot of martial arts in my life, not a lot of weapons training, but definitely exposed to even some, some videos. Some of the guests that have been on here have put out with, you know, a single stab wound that ended up taking a life. Um, you know, when, when, wh- when there's a group of people that think that one woman actively stabbing another one was not justifiable cause for using a firearm, um, you know, what what is that like through the eyes of a law enforcement officer, and how do we educate the public that it's irrelevant what tool is used if someone's actively murdering someone, they're actively murdering someone.
1: It's it's such a difficult thing to to hear how poorly that op- that brave officer who should actually be lauded as a hero, he took heroic action and he had seconds to make a decision and that was an example of rapidly changing situation that um, I don't know if he knew that there was a knife involved when they got to that call. I think he was going to a fight call, but how in a split second you can go from zero to a hundred and you have to make a life uh, dec- life, uh, life or death decision and in close proximity. And I think one of the things that, and you may have noticed this, but when I first watched, I've only watched part of the video. You know, it's not like the whole thing, but what you see is the officer's got his hands out in that, Peace, like he's trying to calm the situation down. And when you know when people put their hands out in an open, you know, open palm trying to thing, like we were trying to like, hey, you know, stop doing that or calm down something. He was trying to calm the situation, but it was totally out of control. There was, you know, there was it was totally out of control. And then when you see someone start swinging a knife at another person, trying to t- trying to murder them, what what are you supposed to do? Unfortunately, some people have some unreal expectations that if you shoot someone in the back of the leg, that that's going to stop them. You could shoot that girl in the back of the leg and she could stab that girl 17 more times before, um, you stop her. Um, and bullets are not, they're not just magic and that it doesn't make uh, people stop. My, my friend was in a, he was attacked by a guy on a, on a stop at three o'clock in the morning, stopped some dude on a bike. And the guy had a, a screwed, like a 10 inch screwdriver that was, <clears throat> filed down to a point. So it was like a giant ice pick. And as soon as he went to talk to the guy, the guy pulled that thing out. My friend shot him 14 times before the guy fell on top of him and he hit him with a lethal shot to the to the forehead. And that's what stopped him. But the guy was had been shot 14 times with a, I can't remember if it was a nine or a 45. And um, the guy was still trying to stab him with all of those wounds. So it, one, a shot in the leg or a shot in the arm, it doesn't stop somebody. And then what if he had just stood there and done nothing? Because the reverse thing would have happened is that if the cop would have done nothing and just stayed back and kept yelling at them, you know, drop the knife, drop the knife. Well, every time you say that and that girl's moving her arm, what if that knife is making contact with that other girl while you're giving those commands? And now you've got these potential, you know, five to seven wounds that this person is going to get. And if you hit somebody once in the right spot you can kill them. you hit an artery you hit um their jugular you hit hit um, uh the femoral in the leg um you know if somebody could think that oh it was just a little stab wound well you hit the right spot on someone and they'll bleed to death
0: mhm yeah, exactly and i think that's that's a strange place we found ourselves where and, and and that's my whole thing is to reverse engineer so we don't even have these violent situations what the question no one's asking is why don't we have all this violence on the streets of sweden on the streets of finland on the streets of all these countries that seem to exist with the occasional violent attack but they're not all you know loaded like john rambo walking around because everyone else is loaded like john rambo you know what i mean that's what we need to be talking about but at the moment we're not advocating for the victims so the victim was that poor young woman that was about to be murdered, be stabbed to death in front of her, you know, friends or whoever was around her. And the discussion is, why did you shoot the attacker? Well, you know, no one's, no one's rooting for Freddy Krueger in the, you know, the, those movies. You know what I mean? So why all of a sudden are some of these very violent criminals, not the gray area ones, not the, not the, you know, the George Floyds where, you know, yes, that was a, you know, an abandonment of professionalism, in my opinion. But these ones where someone has a gun, a knife, whatever, they're actively shooting, they're raising their hand up, that's not a that's not a gray area discussion. Why are you not advocating for the person that they were about to kill, whether it was a police officer themselves or an innocent civilian? Yeah, and that's
1: that's what should be happening. And and the other thing is with the training, and I think that the, this officer, he what he did was was Right on point of what you would expect somebody to do. And, you know, one of the terms we use is tactical decision making under stress. And tactical decision making under stress is, is when you put our, our police officers through a scenario and have them make decisions on whether to use force. And in this situation, um, he had a deadly threat before him. And at that moment, in that split second, the decision that he could make was that, well, sh- should I go to a less you know, a less lethal option, or do I go to my, go to the lethal option? Cause you're not, he's not trying to kill the person. He's trying to stop them. He's trying to stop them from doing what they and the best thing that he has, to, the best tool he has on that split second notice is his firearm. And what a lot of departments do is run people through shoot, don't shoot scenarios. Because, and, and I'm sure you did this in the fire service where you create some chaos and then you guys got to work through the problem. Right. You've got to set your gear or you you make maybe create a malfunction that you've got to fix during, you know, the scenario under stress. And you do some similar things like this. And some people do them in firearm simulators is that you you start to condition people to have a response so that they can make a faster decision. Because the worst thing that could have happened in uh, Cleveland with that officer is that what if he would have froze? And we talked about that, that doing nothing part. What if he would have? Not known what to do and that and that girl got stabbed seven times, and she died because he wasn 't ready in this case the the young man was was ready, and um, he saved that girl 's life
0: yeah, and again i before I say this i wasn 't there i you know i 'm not saying that I know exactly what happened, but the reports that were given about parkland if you don 't act, then more and more and more people die you know so there 's that fine line i mean, 'm not saying that I would have been any more or less courageous if put in that position myself but if you know the reason why we're trusted to ride a police car or you know a fire engine or whatever it is because we've done the training and earned the certificates and earned the the responsibility to save a life if the scenario you know is given that way and so to be able to make that decision like you said I think he made the right decision, and, and if he hadn't, then absolutely, A, that person would have died, and B, then they would have been heralded as a coward as well. So, I mean, it was a, it was a lose-lose for him, but it was a huge win for that young woman that was about to be murdered.
1: Yes, and I think, you know, her family is – they, they the, the the victim's family, they understand, and I think that they're great. It's sad that this other person lost their life, but they're glad that their daughter um, wasn't seriously injured. Um, in what happened and and getting support like that from the victim's family is huge Um, because you know no matter what it's going to be a bad ending for somebody
0: yeah no exactly and again you know what really needs to be discussed is how did it even get to that point what was the what was the backstory there so you mentioned about you know having to actually use your firearm yourself for the first time so tell me about that scenario and then we'll kind of lead into if there was any kind of mental effects of that call for you?
1: Yes. So about three years into my career, we went, we, uh, we had a, a call of a, a, guy that was under the influence of alcohol and prescription medication. It was up in a pretty nice neighborhood. Um, but that he's the, his daughter called his 18 year old daughter called and said that my dad has a gun and he's running around the house. He says he's going to kill all of us and then kill himself. So, myself and a partner, we kind of arrived at the same time and I parked about, you know, ta- tactically We we parked about six or seven houses down the street, we blacked out before me, which means turning off all your lights and stuff and blacked out down the street. And as we parked our cars, um, about 40 yards up and it was, it was dark. It was about eight thirty at night. We see this woman get out of a car and she just starts sprinting down the street towards us. <clears throat> and my partner said, I'll, talked to her and I said, okay, I'll go up and um, see what's going on by the house. And uh, I took my shotgun with me. And um, so I make my way up to the house and I kind of, I'm across the street and I'm sneaking through the front yards and long story short, I make a, a, a good approach and I I, I get myself into a real dark spot on the neighbor's driveway across the street. And I don't have any protection, but I have concealment. He's nobody can see me cause I got in this real dark spot. And so as I'm up there, um, my, the, the, the I'm being updated that who the, the person is that, um, the girl that ran down the street said that her dad had a, had, uh, a rifle and that he was running around the house, you know, trying to load the guns. And he said that he was going to kill her and her 11 year old brother. <clears throat> and then he was going to kill himself. And, um, when we had got there, she was trying to leave and she had the club on her steering wheel, you know, the locking device. And she had backed out of the driveway because her dad had come out and chased him out of the house. And then she saw the cops. And she just pulled over and got out of the car and ran. And she said, my 11 year old brother's still in the car in front of the house. So I was, the the car was in between me and the house. And right when she said that the brother was in the the car, um, I heard a little bit of yelling and I see this guy walk down the driveway and he's got a rifle in his hand. And he walks down the driveway and Uh, walks over to that car and he, and he points the rifle into the car. And I thought, Oh my God, he's going to murder this kid right in front of me. And I got, um, I'll tell you, uh, let me back up one step is that I got surprised for a second because my mindset, was my experience at that point had been, okay, this is probably going to turn into a SWAT call out we're probably, I'm across the street, I'm just gonna keep watching the front, we're gonna have more officers come, we'll call the SWAT team, they'll come in and take over, and we're just gonna kinda do a containment, and I wasn't expecting him to come out. So when he came out, when I talked to you earlier, I said about rapidly changing situation, I went from thinking we're doing a containment to the guy's out, he's walking down the driveway right now, he's got a rifle in his hand, does he see me? Am I really in a dark spot? Like, you know, okay. Okay. Does he know where I am? And then he walks up to that car and he points the rifle into the car. And that was when I made the decision that, um, that I've got to attack this guy. Basically I need to, I need to take action. And, um, so he had his back to me because he walked out into the street. I couldn't shoot him from across the street because, my backdrop was that car that had the, the kid in it. So I made the decision to just rush him and get close. I wanted to get closer to him and he moved slightly away from the car. He didn't know I was, he didn't know I was there. So I I, I was getting the drop on him, which was a, which was an advantage to me. He moved over toward the um, front of the car. He started to point the rifle into the windshield of the car and I yelled at him cause I still didn't have a shot. I, I tried to distract him to get his attention toward me cause I didn't, I still couldn't fire on him. And he turned and when he turned, he, there was a, uh, an 11 year old and the lady next door that was standing at the next house over. And he started to raise, he, he started to raise the rifle toward the neighbor and the 11 year old. And, um, and then, and that's when I shot him with the shotgun. And, um, what I didn't realize is that that 11 year old that was next door, that was the kid that had been in the car. So he was hunting for his own child. He was pointing the rifle in the car and he was moving around the car and he was looking for him. And what I didn't know is that the kid had gotten out of the car before I got there. It was standing over on the driveway with the neighbor. And then he saw his son and he started to raise the rifle. And and that's, that's when I, that's when I engaged him. And, uh, the first shot, I'll tell you what my what my expectation was is that, okay, I'm gonna shoot this guy with a 12-gauge shotgun right now. I was I shot him from about um, twenty feet away. What I expected to happen was that there was gonna be two sneakers in the street and he was gonna be curled up in a ball on the street. I mean up on the up on the grass. And when I fired the first shot at him, there was a, a distinct cloud that was only there for a fraction, but when it blinds you, it seems like it's there for longer. I fired, and when the smoke cleared, he was still standing, and now he was turning towards me with the rifle, and I went, oh, shit, because my expectation was I'm going to shoot one thing of buckshot at him, and it's just going to knock him down, and it didn't, and so, you know, we were just talking about this other shooting where, like, oh, you shoot somebody in the leg, and that's, you know, but people, their expectations, where I I thought, okay, I'm going to do this, and he... but I fired that that he was he was moving and I think he stepped through part of the, the blast and I caught him in the arm. And when he that got his attention, he turned toward me and he started to point the rifle towards me. So I racked the shotgun, I pull the trigger, and it goes click. The longest silence you've ever heard in your life. Or the or the, the and the loudest sound you've ever heard in your life was click. And I had a malfunction on the shotgun, and um, so I, I I cycled it, I cleared it, and I basically double tapped him with two more um, rounds of buckshot, and I hit him in the pelvic girdle in the, in the waist area, and uh, that knocked him down. Um, he fell down on the ground. He's laying face first and face down, and the rifle was underneath him. And as as I was walking up to him, because I'm hitting him, I'm on the move, so I hit him, I cycle it, malfunction. And then I, there's a double tap of where I, I hit him twice and I could see the blast now hitting him in the pelvic girdle. And I know I'm hitting because it's buckling his, his hips and he goes down to the ground and the rifles underneath him. And as I'm walking up to him, screaming at him, don't do it. He's trying to roll over to pull the rifle out from underneath him. And I'm like, oh my this, Oh my God, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to, ex- I'm going to have to shoot him from close range. And, um, that he ran out of gas and he just kind of collapsed down on, on the rifle. And then that's when I saw, you know, you, my, I had totally had tunnel vision because I was fixed in, it was like looking through a soda straw look. Cause the only thing that mattered is where his hands were and what that gun was doing to make, was going to be what my next decision was going to be is if I was going to have to, you know, shoot him for really close range to stop him. And all of a sudden I saw a Beretta, a nine millimeter come into my field of view, and it was my partner who ran up the street and now was with me. And then that's when my vision opened back up. So, you know, I experienced auditory exclusion. I fired a shotgun three times and my ears weren't ringing. Um, my, uh, I definitely was totally fixated, um, on him. I mean, you know, focused on the, what the threat was. And, um, and I had an adrenaline dump after that. And, um, some of so the interesting things were, so what I learned afterwards is that I short racked the shotgun. I cycled it so fast that I didn't come all the way back and eject the empty, um, because I fired and I racked it super quick while I short racked it, which means you didn't open the chamber up all the way and eject that casing, shell casing and pick up a new round. So when I fired I get that click and when when they say you'll revert to your training that's exactly what i did in the police academy when you were at the range they were taught us for safety when you were shooting your gun like if it doesn't go off hold it down range and wait cuz you could have a squib right you could have a you know it could be a delayed primer and i remember i i don't know why but i'm standing there looking at this guy and i'm going okay hold it on him come on baby go off you know and then I knew I had some kind of a problem and luckily I was able to to clear it really quickly. But those things that I'm describing, you could tell me, it, it take a minute to tell you, but those, those thoughts happen in a fraction of a second, you know, make the decision, fire, reassess the target, fire, click, nothing's wrong. What's wrong. What's wrong. What's wrong with the gun? Clear it. And then a very rapid double tap on him that seemed like a long time, but the whole thing was over in maybe five seconds, the shooting incident. But I just spent five minutes like describing to you what happened, but it probably was over in five seconds once I engaged him.
0: Now, what time of day was this? <laughs> it was about eight o'clock at night, so it was dark. Okay, yeah, so you got the, that element too. Um, yeah, I mean, it's fascinating. I had a Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman on a couple of times. So when you're talking about the, the kind of, you know, looking through a straw and the auditory exclusion, I mean, that's something that's reported a lot. Did the, uh, did the father survive that shooting?
1: He did. So the, um, he did, um, he lost one of his, I uh, hit him in the, hit him right in the, in the pelvic girdle. So he only has one testicle now and, uh, they almost amputated his leg, but he ended up with a, with a limp for the rest of his life. But, um, one of the things that I learned from that shooting is that my, uh, when I got debriefed, the psychologist asked me, he said, how do you feel that he lived? What are your thoughts about whether the guy lived or died? And that prompted me to say, well, I'm a little bit, I can't believe I didn't shoot him in the chest. I mean, I was at close enough distance that I should have, I was 20, 25 feet away from him when I, when I, when the shooting happened. And I said, I, I can't believe like I didn't shoot him in the chest, you know, which is kind of what I should have done. And he said, okay, well, let's talk, walk back through this. He goes, where was the gun when you shot him? And he said it was, his hand was down at his side and the gun was at his side. He was starting to raise it. So he said. So what were you looking at? I was looking at the gun. He said, he goes, you didn't miss you. You 10 ringed him. You shot where the threat was. And I was fixated on the direction of, of, of the gun. The only thing that mattered about the decision that I was going to make was where is that gun pointed? And when he started to obviously point the gun at the the neighbor, and then when he started to turn toward me, the gun his hand was down around his waist area, turning this this small rifle towards me. And that's what I was fixated on. And that's what I shot at. And I hit exactly what I was aiming at. And the thing that I learned was just about the presence of mind. If like if you get in a situation like that, you've got to think, okay, there's the gun, but raise up. Like what do you you want if you want to go to, for a body shot or, or a headshot to neutralize the guy. Um, but I was just fixated on where the gun was and that's where I shot him. And so that's why he got shot through the hips and the, um, the buttocks and the, and the groin, because that's where his hand was. That's where the pistol grip was on the on the gun.
0: Now, you don't always get to to have someone survive an incident like this. So were you able to find out the backstory again, like how that man got to that point of crisis that he was in?
1: So he had a business that was failing. Um, his wife had left him or they were going through a divorce. He had an alcohol problem. He was taking pills for something. So I don't know if he had some kind of an injury or, or what the, the meds were. But, you know, he was under the influence of alcohol and prescription medication by all reports. And when he was in the hospital, when the detectives went to go talk to him about, you know, he can t- tell us about what happened, What he told the detectives was, he said, I was in the parking lot of Home Depot and some guy shot me. He had, he had no, he claimed that he had no recollection that of the incident that happened, that uh, anything, you know, the interaction with the police or the shooting that happened in front of his house. He said he was at Home Depot in the parking lot and he got shot by somebody. That's how out of it the guy was.
0: Yeah. See, and if he was telling, if
1: he was telling the truth,
0: yeah. Well, and that's obviously one part. But I mean, that's this the thing that you see over and over again. I mean, like the George Floyd incidents, for example, when you watch the events leading up to that and the, the the panic state he was in, that obviously led to his death. Doesn't wasn't justified in any way, shape, or form. But had he sat in that police car, that event never would have happened. So you know, so many of these incidents, whether it's um, violence through. Um, you know, gang activity, whether it's, um like you said, crystal meth and PCP and some of these things that we see, you know, really strange activity under, or whether, God forbid, it's murder-suicide, there's always this underlying mental health element, and that's never discussed. Like, you know, what is it that's making the most affluent country on the planet have so many people that are so unhappy that they're killing themselves, killing other people, putting themselves in positions where they're being, you know, shot by law enforcement officers, usually justified, sometimes not justified. I mean, we've created this, this, you know, recipe for disaster in, in this mental ill health. And, you know, that's, I think, the, the nucleus of what we really need to look at to make it safer for the civilians and the law enforcement community.
1: Right. And it's such a, you know, the suspect dictates the situation. And we liked, we ideally... We would like to dictate the situation and i've listened to um i know we'll we'll talk about extreme ownership hopefully a little bit later but um you know one of the things that jocko and leif talk about in some of their trainings is they you know they would train themselves like we dictate the situation the bad guys don't dictate the situation well that's not really true in law enforcement and and um when you're when you're dealing with people out in the community a lot of times more times than not, the the suspects dictate the situation. They do something that generates a response from law enforcement, from the paramedics, from the firefighters. And when you were you talk about George Floyd, is that you know if George? If he would have just got into the police car, it's like, hey man, you're you're under arrest. We're taking you downtown to the precinct house. You know, you're under arrest, brother. And he won't cooperate, and he won't get into the car. And then he's you know whether you believe that he was feigning that uh, I'm claustrophobic and I don't want to get in the car, but also these officer, people have dealt with him before and I was a cop for 29 years and I dealt with people dozens and dozens and dozens of times that they fake that they're having a medical emergency or they, they don't, they, they just will not get in the car and you're trying to get them into the car without hurting them. And, and so, and then you, sometimes it ends up, you can do it and sometimes you can't and it's not easy to get somebody that doesn't want to get into the back of a police car into a car. And that, and that guy was a pretty big guy too, you know, and those things aren't built for comfort. Um, you know, a big guy getting into those cars, it's not comfortable because there's not a lot of leg room and things like that. But he dictated the situation. All he had to do was just get in the back of the car. Like, Hey man, we're going to take you to the station and we're going to, we're going to book you for, you know, having a counterfeit bill. And me I don't know if there would have been a drug violation or something, but it was basically you had a counterfeit bill. We're gonna take you to the station and it's real simple. But it went to completely sideways. And but it started because he wouldn't just get he wouldn't get in the car.
0: Yeah. And I think you had two you know, two perfect storms meeting at that point. You had obviously his journey and then you had, you know, the law enforcement at that moment where you had a, a guy that was doing, as I heard you mentioned in another interview, what no law enforcement officer is ever trained to do, which is kneel on someone for minutes and minutes. You had the other people on scene not step up and take control of that situation regardless of rank. And then you had the EMS personnel not exactly being compassionate when they showed up either. So, you know, it was just that. And I see it a lot that compassion fatigue from the responder side the the lack of ownership obviously from the other side those two meet in the middle and and sadly it's you know it's catastrophic sometimes you know and you got one person who's dead and another person who you know has lost their freedom and all because of that one that one moment that that accumulation of all these events
1: yeah these um no no one no one has been trained to do what that guy did that day i mean the officer you know i there is no. Everyone was talking about banning chokeholds and things like that. That was not a chokehold. That those nobody put anybody into a chokehold. You had um, there was an abusive act that happened that where um, you know look in the 21st century we. We, in, in the area that I worked in Oxnard, we had, unfortunately, some people that um, had died in police custody, and, and and we've all had plenty of opportunities to learn from things that have happened with other agencies, and and you'd think pretty much everybody knows, like, hey, man, you put you get the guy down under control, and then put, roll him on their side and put him into a recovery position. If they're not actively fighting, um, you know, you've got them under control, which those guys clearly had him under he was being loud and he might have been twisting around a little bit but they had him under control like you put the person into a recovery position on their side or sit him up if you were waiting for a van or an ambulance to come put him in sit him up you know put him on his side um because because exactly what happened can happen
0: yeah and i think that's it we just had a discussion where you you know, we talked about both sides of this story, and that's what needs to happen. But what happens is someone grabs one side of the story. And therefore, whether it's, you know, this last year, either you got to wrap yourself in cellophane, never leave your house, otherwise you're a mass murderer with COVID, or COVID's a Chinese conspiracy coming out of communism, and was engineered by Martians, you know, and all the normal people in the middle are like, no, COVID's real. But you know, if we work on our underlying health and wellness, then we can be a lot more resilient and, you know, move on from this. So that middle ground just doesn't get a voice in so many of these discussions. Um So obviously you had that, you know, that shooting in itself. I know you transitioned into SWAT and then also in the gang detail. So I'm kind of curious with that. Um I didn't see a lot of gang specific stuff when I moved back to the East Coast. But when I worked for Anaheim for a few years, that's when I really, really saw, I think California has a, you know, I would, I would assume one of the worst gang problems of any of the States. Um, Tell me about that time. And, and what I'd love to paint a picture is, you know, who, who are the players? Tell me about the age of these gangs, what they're fighting over and ultimately who is gaining from this activity at the street level.
1: Mm, Interesting and complicated question, but uh yeah. Southern California had some pretty active, you know, the city that I was in, we had primarily uh, Hispanic street gangs. And then we had, uh, we had one black gang. We had a couple of Asian gangs, but primarily the population of the community that I worked in for the last 23 years of my career was, was 70 plus percent Hispanic. So the the criminal street gangs in that area um, were, were Hispanic. And you know, I think that the the main battle is about respect, and you have people that um, start to identify with a neighborhood. And they, they do things that they're saying it's, it's for the neighborhood. And they get into, you get these young people that start getting into um, stealing cars or breaking into houses. And then, it, you know, it evolves into hanging around with, with some really bad people. And next thing you know, they're carrying weapons and they're robbing people in the neighborhood. So, you know, this neighborhood that they're supposed to uh, represent, they're just robbing and pillaging, you know, the weaker people in the neighborhood. And um, they would you know, in the 90s, and I started in the 90s, and I'm sure, you know, in the 80s, it was pretty much the same, if not worse. But, you know, these guys would walk around in packs in certain neighborhoods. If you had a gang neighborhood, you'd have a pack of, you know, eight to 10 of these guys walking around intimidating people. And uh, some of them were probably carrying weapons. And um, they would pick on people in the in the community. And, and Rob's, uh, we have a, a large migrant community, our, our migrant population in, in uh, our community. And on payday, you know they got paid once a week, and you were guaranteed to have a bunch of street robberies that would happen because a lot of these guys just—it it was all cash. They went cash or check, and they didn't have a, a bank account, and they knew it. Um, so you'd have some robberies that would happen, but then you'd get the gang on gang stuff where one group would go into a neighborhood and look for somebody that they thought was from that gang, and and um, and attack them. And usually it was with a shooting or a knife, or they get into a fight, and then next thing somebody gets a weapon comes out. And then that leads to retaliation where okay, you guys came into our neighborhood, now somebody's gonna go back over into your neighborhood. And a lot of the times the, the victims of these shootings and stabbings were people from the gangs. But sometimes the sad thing was is we had a couple of cases where a person was just walking down the street and 15, 16 years old had nothing to do with the gang. They weren't gang related. They were not a bad person. But a group of people drove by and go, that guy, and they jump out and they're, you know, it's like, where are you from? And that was, that can be the most deadly question that somebody ever asked you in your life. Where are you from? Because that's probably going to lead to some kind of an altercation, Um, at least, you know, in the, in the areas where, where I live and, and worked and they hit this guy up and they, where are you from? And they were going to, they already had it in their mind that they were going to shoot him. They had no idea who he was and he and they murdered this kid. He wasn't a gang member. He was just a 16-year-old that was walking home from somewhere, you know. And but, you know, where is it, Lee? Where you you have um, influences that can come from the prison system? So um, you know, these guys get in trouble and they go from juvenile hall to county jail and some of them end up in state prison. And when you get into the, into the big boy group, the prison system has a hierarchy and some of these guys will come out and become shot callers in their neighborhood and try and, you know, enforce things on behalf of, of the, the prison gangs. And, um, and that that generates some things that they call it the prison, the politics of what's going on in within prison. Um, but, you know, it's, a, it's about money and respect and a lot of young people get caught up in that and they really ruin their lives. And then, you know, they get into drugs and I've, I've seen so many kids that were hardcore gangsters when they were 16, 18 years old and they're 35 years old. They're homeless uh, heroin addicts that live on a park bench that but, you know, 10 years earlier, they were a hardcore gangster for whatever neighborhood it was that they were representing
0: yeah well and I saw a lot especially yeah mainly when I was there and and actually in florida I saw a lot more of what you were talking about we had a lot of mexican immigrants here and same thing you you get called and there'd be a a Mexican man that was all bloodied and beaten and and it was always on the same day so people were watching them coming back with their cash and you know were robbing them so imagine the the, the labor that that man probably put in in you know five six seven days just to get that money and then he gets robbed as well and then in California the number of you know 15 16 year old kids that I put a yellow blanket over because they 'd be murdered for you know like you said an apartment complex that their parents may have only lived in for two years, which is even more insanity, but the underlying thing again that I saw at least was you know the the um, illicit drug trade so what what did you see as far as that factoring into the power you know the 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 ability to buy weapons, and then was there a hierarchy within that, and was there somewhere someone far away from central or southern california making a lot of money from these kids at the bottom level
1: i think there's always someone's making money somewhere but i think a lot of these kids are looking for an identity and you get some of these young people that they may not have a very good home life and then they look at these other guys as their brothers and and their their other family and you also sadly have um some of these kids, they actually do have a mom and a dad and, they're, and their mom and dad work hard and, you know, they but they live in a, a poor neighborhood and they start associating with the wrong people. So it, it, it goes both ways where you've got a mom, but then they're not controlled. They're not controlling their kid. I mean, like meaning, you know, getting them back on the right track. And it could be because they're not supervised. You know, I told you when I was a little kid, my my mom was at work all the time. Well that's the case with a lot of these people. They may have a mom and a bitch, and then who do they who's in control? They're the people that they start to associate themselves. And some kids go to the library and read books and, and learn music and or play sports to keep themselves occupied. And then some people will go and start hanging around in the neighborhood with these troublemakers because it starts to get exciting. And, you know, they start doing, you know, things. But those things just start to escalate. And, and, and here in California, you know, it's, you're, it's linked into the, the Mexican drug cartels primarily where um, you know methamphetamine and, and heroin cocaine that that gets trafficked in and they're just they're just trying to make uh, some kind of a life for themselves
0: yeah well so i'm going to ask you this and i think the law enforcement community is always the hardest group of men and women to to ask this question because they've been asked to enforce drug you know prohibition related laws their whole career but I've I've had you know people on from all different countries that have had some very successful solutions to some of the issues that we face and the whole yeah my whole thing is that each country has a humility to learn from other ones um I was in Portugal my a couple of my family members moved there uh, a couple of decades ago and I sat down with the the gentleman who spearheaded the decriminalization of addiction in Portugal not selling not smuggling but the addicts And they created, you know, they made them a medical patient instead of a criminal. Um, They had an amazing success. Obviously, it cut the head off the snake of, of you know, selling and and smuggling because there was, you know, supply and demand. They weren't having anyone to sell to anymore. Um, They were able to free up a lot of the police resources to focus on a lot more of the dangerous people, free up the court systems, open up the prisons. Um, So proactively speaking, it seems like a very, very good idea having... With us having tried drug prohibition for almost a hundred years, and you know, for what you've seen on the streets, for what I've seen on the streets, I don't consider it working personally. What is your perspective on the the philosophy of making addiction a medical issue rather than a legal issue, and and re- removing that supply or that power from the underworld and putting it back into the medical community?
1: We spent a lot of our time arresting people for being under the influence of illegal narcotics. I mean, that was a, it was a tool that we used to get junkies off the street because there is a legitimate um, safety issue with these people that break into your house and rob people and uh, steal to go try and get money to buy drugs. So addressing that is definitely one of the issues. And we, we're seeing, um, you know, zero bail or offenses where people just revolve in and out. And um, people in the, in the communities are getting victimized by that. On the flip side, what I, I, I'm open to what you're talking about, because you definitely want to have your police officers focused on violent crime. And there's, there's a lot of other things that we can focus our efforts on, but for a long time, um, our efforts were focused on drug enforcement and getting these, you know, drug offenders um, off the street because of the impact that they have on uh, the community. Now, most of the people that we dealt with were people that were criminals and, and they happened to be under the influence or they had some drugs in their pocket. Um, but there's a bunch of people out there that have addiction problems that they don't have any interaction with the police. Um, so I, I, if we were able to have a system where we had a robust way to, to help people with their addictions, cause right now we don't, I, right now we don't, I, I retired last year and pretty much every day someone was overdosing on fentanyl in our community flatlined almost every day. And thank God for the uh, reversing drugs that exist because all those people would probably be dead if Narcan didn't exist. Um, and, you know, the the fact that police officers all have Narcan, well, I mean, many now have it. A lot of officers are, are saving these guys' lives, but literally almost every day. Uh, and that was something that we didn't see. We weren't having heroin over fatal Heroin overdoses on a daily basis. Occasionally, something would happen, but literally, somebody right now is getting a hot shot of fentanyl that is, um, is, you know, putting them into an agonal state. And thank God somebody finds them before they before they die. so that's, you know, how do you how do you fix that?
0: Yeah, and I think the other the other side of the coin that I think is very interesting, and I talk about this quite a bit especially the SEAL community for some reason, I'm sure it's just through it working for some and then they tell more and more, but I see a lot of men and women that have fought for this country that have to go overseas to use MDMA-led counseling or psilocybin or some of these, you know, what we class as illicit drugs that are very, very therapeutic and very effective in, you know, healing mental trauma, healing TBI, Uh, Even stem cells, which is not a a drug, but that's something that, you know, we can't have in the U.S. and people have to go to South America to get. So that's the other side of it, too, you know. And and what I think Portugal has done so well is they've looked at addiction as a mental health issue. And I think that, just like you said, there's a lot of crime that spins off addiction. You have to feed your addiction, you know. So if you can address the underlying thing that made you turn to, whether it was illicit or even, like you said, alcohol and all the violence we've seen from that, That is the core of it. That's how we make our our community safer. But the fact that our own first responders and military can't even get treatment because of our drug laws at the moment, I think that's another reason for us to revisit it.
1: It's been pretty interesting to start. I've been listening to some podcasts where guys are talking about going down to Mexico or Costa Rica and doing the um, psychedelic treatments. And the most recent one I listened to was uh, Dakota Meyer was telling his story about uh, the thing that actually fascinated me about that is that he's a fireman and it's like you're going and he's openly talking about that i went and i'm doing psychedelic treatments and i sometimes i take psilocybin uh mushrooms you know periodically and that um he can still work as a fireman which i think is great because if it's a treat if it's a legitimate treatment that he's doing and he's because i mean he has um pts issues and he's he's done the um the stella Gagnon um block stuff with and he's doing all this stuff because he's got serious conditions that he needs to deal with and i completely respect that and it's interesting to hear more and more like you're talking i've heard a bunch of seals talking about going down to mexico and these psychedelic treatments are unlocking the traumas that they've you know been living it's one thing to get um, pts from their combat experience but many of them have childhood traumas that this is all amplified with their childhood trauma, untreated childhood trauma, and then the things that they've seen during their military time, and then it gets to a point where you're you're just trying to live without being in a constant you know anxiety state because of because of what you've experienced throughout your life. And I, I and I, I I dealt with some of that stuff myself, um, and I just it it's it can be crippling it can be crippling.
0: Well, let's talk about that because I want to transition obviously to the work you're doing now. So tell me about your, your kind of your mental health journey and then where the lowest point was for you and how you got yourself out of it.
1: Yeah. So in 2015, um, I became, I got promoted to Sergeant in 14 and in 15, um, I basically had been having nightmares for two years straight. I'd probably been on the job about 23 years or so, almost 24 years. Um, and I had, I had been in the shooting that we had talked about, and then the the second incident I was involved in is my, my partner shot an, accidentally, negligently sh- um, hit, shot an unarmed suspect that we were trying to arrest, and um, he tripped and he squeezed, he milked it and and um, and cranked off around. And thank God he didn't shoot the guy in the chest; that he shot him in the arm. Um, but um, you know, I I went. To hundreds and hundreds of incidents of violence and um, the constant stress of of, of of being a police officer working out in the community, and um, also some things that had happened in my personal life. I got seriously injured in 2012. I broke my back, and uh, at Lake I jumped off a rock at Lake Havasu, and when I when I hit the water, my back broke. So I, I had a near career-ending injury three weeks after I had back surgery, my wife got diagnosed with stage three breast cancer. And, um, you know, it's like, just all this stuff was happening. And in 2015, it just kind of all came to a head of where, like I said, I'd been having nightmares for two years straight. I was, um, I was, I was been in a lot of physical pain. Um, I, I couldn't sleep, I was afraid to go to sleep. I kept having these nightmares that bad guys were trying to kick down my front door. And um, I was kind of like probably becoming what my grandfather had experienced a little bit of like when I went to sleep, um, I felt like I was vulnerable and I couldn't relax because I was afraid that when I went to sleep, I can't defend myself. As crazy as that sounds, um, I was afraid that I won't hear because I've been having nightmares for so long. I was like, I'm not going to hear that bump of the night. Or what if they try and you know, come into the house and you see so many people that have been victimized in your life and you just start to like, you don't want your own family to get hurt. And I was, I was hypervigilant and, and I was just, I wasn't in a good place. And uh, I was sitting in a training, a crisis intervention training, and there was a woman that was giving a presentation about veterans and PTSD. And she wrote her phone number up on the, on the board. And, you know, we all go through so many trainings through our life and the instructor writes their name down or here's my email if you want to contact me. Well, I wrote the phone number down. And after that training, I called her. I felt like I could trust her. And I said, hey, could could you connect me with a clinician because I need to deal with this. Now, leading up to that, um, I also had more than 10 years of experience on our trauma support team and our peer support team. And I was actually now that at that time, I was the peer support coordinator for our department. And I got to a point where I needed to take my own medicine. I knew what I was experiencing. I knew that I was having uh, post-traumatic stress reactions to a lot of different things. And I was becoming withdrawn. Um, and I just was avoiding it. I didn't want to open up that that box. I didn't want to deal with all that stuff. And I finally made that phone call and started seeing a clinician and I saw somebody for about six months. Um, I did EMDR a few times and I don't have nightmares anymore. And, but it took me a long time to get, you know, get past my own ego to, you know, I didn't want anybody to know cause you know, you feel like people are going to think you're weak because you're talking to a counselor or, um, I was hoping it would go away eventually and it wasn't going away, but I, I just had to, um, face, you know, probably our greatest fear, which is, you know, we'll go to a shots fired man with a gun call all day long. You'll go to a structure fire all day long. But the scariest thing some of us have to do is walk into a counselor's office and say, Hey, I've been through some stuff and I need a little bit of help.
0: So with that, um, you know, I know you use the, uh, the term trauma informed counselor, you know, someone who's competent, you know, to understand what we've been through. And I've heard 450 plus episodes on here. Sadly, I've heard so many horror stories of a uh, responder in crisis sitting in front of the wrong person who almost costs their life, you know, basically, if, if you boil it down. Um, and one of the things that I see now is, is there seems to be an acceptance of this being a thing. PTS seems to have had, you know, finally been acknowledged by a lot of us, but it's the what now element. And, you know, whether you're in the right insurance company or, you know, your EAP, and, you know, Dustin Hawkins, a good friend of mine, he he called the AP he was given, and it was even the wrong number. They'd changed, you know, agencies years prior. I'm Um, surprised. Shocking. Yes. So... (laughs) You know what's interesting is you were in that role, and even you had to kind of reach out to someone before you could find the right person. One one philosophy I, I've kind of come up with, and and you know I want to get your thought on it is I ended up working for four agencies, that was four testing. You know, um, uh, I went through four tests basically, and each time, apart from one, I had to do a polygraph. Each time I had to do the psych test. Now, I can imagine combined, that's quite a lot of money. Polygraph is complete smoke and mirrors. I mean, I think it's an absolute waste of time. You know, you do a good background check is how you find out about a person. And then the psych test is absolutely checking boxes as well. There's nothing relevant. And even the people, the psychologists I've had, that's a joke even in their profession. What blows me away is why we don't take that same budget at the front door of a department And say, all right, we're going to put you through PT. You're going to do, you know, skills training the way we do it in our department. And during this orientation period, we're going to put you through five sessions with a counsellor. So, firstly, that childhood trauma you get to offload if you have any, you know. Secondly, more importantly, or as importantly, is that now you have a relationship with a counsellor. So, at one year or 31 years. You know, you can walk through that door. You don't have to go to a phone number. You don't have to email somebody. You don't have to ask, you know, the the guy you know who started a nonprofit that you immediately have that go to. Now, would that have made a difference in your situation?
1: I think it could have, and I think you have you'll always have people that are resistant to it, but there's there there's definitely a paradigm shift that's happening now. And what we're seeing is some agencies that are making an investment in their people because Um, the point that you were making is that you were talking about how much money they spend on the front end to make sure that you're emotionally, physically, mentally fit to do this job. But then we chew you up for 20 plus years and then send you back out to the community with zero mental health treatment to before you retire or through, there's no mandatory, you know, mental health check-ins before you, you know, or, or when, when things that there's no mandatory. And you know that your people are being, any copper firefighter worth their salt that does this job is going to experience post traumatic stress multiple times throughout their career. And that is a fact. And if we embrace that and invest in our people with um, doing like an annual or a biannual um, mental health check-in, And because what you do is when I talk about the paradigm shift is you start to normalize that. And if on the front end you bring as because you're going to have the old guard, they may like it, they may not. But if we go, you start to implement um, doing these annual check ins or every two years or something is that it becomes normal. And it's and so you get your new people and you introduce them. Hey, we've got a peer support team. We've got an EAP. We've got a psychologist that we work with. And what I would do with our, our orientations with our new folks is, is tell them how the peer support team works, reach out to you and call you and say, hey, it's chef, You know, you guys had a rough call yesterday. I just want to check in on your brother, see how you're doing. And so it becomes normal. And then as they start to get into their career and they have people that are starting to check in with them. On you know child death calls or different fatalities or or you know an attack on an officer maybe a gruesome crime scene or that it's it's it makes it normal for them to be getting contacted by people that are checking in to offer resources if they need it. And then if you have some kind of a mental health contract with someone who's culturally competent, that, that knows how to work with cops, knows how to work with firefighters and the dispatchers, don't forget about the dispatchers ever because they will hate your guts forever if you do. But then you, right, you, you just normalize this. And there's a a city, um, my neighboring city, they just got into a contract where they're the first, city in my county that I know of that, um, they're starting to do annual check-ins. And I think it's going to be tremendous because they, they make an investment. They allow their officers to do some PT, some physical fitness stuff before work, like about 45 minutes before work, they need to do some kind of running, lifting yoga, uh, something. And then they go and they work their shift and now they're implementing a mental health check-in and that's just going to keep our cops healthier and our firefighters healthier through their career. Um, and it and it takes away some of the mystery of counseling too, um, you know, because if you've never done it, then it's kind of can be kind of scary, you know, to go and and unpack some stuff, and because there's a you know you got to deal with it.
0: Yeah. No. Absolutely. Well, so tell me about. Um, your transition because you you made a very good point and it's something I talk about as well when you have that relationship with a counselor there absolutely should be check-ins prior to retirement or let's say you got hurt and you sadly you're going to have to be medically retired whatever it is um, there I think there needs to be a kind of you know as, as much as there's an on-ramp and in an academy and orientation there needs to be an off-ramp as well um, what was your transition like? I mean, you you had that compounding effect um, towards the end of your career, and then now you're, you know, you, like most of us, you identify with the profession. Um, you know, you had that tribe now that you've been in for a long, long time. What was the transition from wearing the uniform to without the uniform anymore?
1: And that could be one of the scariest things out there. Is and a lot of veterans experience this is that you know, hey, your time's up, and you're going to go back you know, to the community and you've been part of something for a long time. And, you know, I joined the military when I was 17. And I, from the time I was 21 until I was 51, I was a policeman. And um, I started getting nervous about what am I going to do when I retire? What's it going to be like? Am I financially ready? Am I emotionally ready? Um, you know, what do you want to do with the rest of your is stepping forward and, and getting some help and number two was extreme ownership came out that year and I really got a lot of value out of um, you know taking ownership of my life and 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 pushing forward and 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 really uh, wanting to be a better leader and a better supervisor and 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 those two things coming together is really what happened and as you fast forward through the years I, I started thinking about what is my next mission going to be and I have to prepare. So about a year and a half before I retired, I identified three or four things that were important to me. And one of them was I wanted to continue to help cops. And I wasn't sure what that would look like. But as I, I neared my retirement, um, I got connected with uh, the Eddies, 911 one International, and they were looking for someone to become a program manager. And um, they take care of cops and firefighters and their families by providing counseling services so I, I was able to find my next mission so i had a smooth transition into where i'm still able to serve um our our community and and help them and help their families deal with all the stuff that that you know this career this this life throws at us
0: beautiful well i want to get to 911 at ease in a, in a moment but tell me about the impact um extreme ownership and the echelon front crew have had on you specifically.
1: It, it's been tremendous. You know, I went to the first muster down in San Diego and um, I had never listened to a podcast in my life until I listened to Jocko podcast. And so um, the way I found out about extreme ownership is I was a um, graveyard supervisor and I walked into one of our off sites and one of my guys was reading a book at like 1230 at night. And my first thought was like, Oh, that's great. I'm glad he's reading while he's supposed to be out patrolling the streets, but he was a good guy, hard worker. And he's like, Hey, Sarge, I'm just taking a little break. He said, "I just got this book, Extreme Ownership. I can't put it down. It was written by a couple of Navy SEALs, and and um, I just, I, it's it's amazing." Well, that night I, I googled it and and found the book, and I got the audio version of the book. And as soon as I listened to that to that book, everything kind of came together for me because I was I always wanted to to try and be the best supervisor I could be, the best leader. I was always just trying to evolve, continual growth, and. Um, I just started implementing a lot of the things that were in the book and taking control of my life and I was I, tell you, I was I had major PTS issues that I was dealing with. And while I was going through um, this counseling with a counselor, I was also reading this book. And I started listening to the podcast. And then I started going to trainings with Leif and Jocko and JP and Dave and the rest of the crew. And so, um, you know, in the last four or five years, I've been to three musters. I went to the roll call event that they did in uh, Dallas. Um, I had the privilege of hosting uh, JP Donnell uh, out in Oxnard. We brought him out to do a conference and um, then i've been able to volunteer at a muster and just build a relationship with them and you know yesterday i was um, at a carry the load event in santa barbara and i got to spend some time with mama lee who's mark lee's mom she's a gold star mom and the the ceo of america's mighty warriors and i The journey through that has been about relationships and building relationships with like-minded people. I have all these new friends that are all over the country and all over the world. Some in South Africa and Australia, the UK, these guys that I met because uh, Jocko Willink and Leif Babin wrote a book called Extreme Ownership. And we all met at these various training events. And there's so many people that um, I'm close with because we found each other through extreme ownership
0: beautiful well, yeah, i'm mean, actually heard jocko i want to say it may have even been on tim Ferriss's podcast i know those two are very close and that's my favorite uh podcast where tim is a guest and jocko actually interviewed him and he talks about his mental health struggles um but i've had you know jocko on twice now um i had jp dave burke and then um Jason and Iris you know Jason's been on twice once with Iris once on his own and they're actually coming to Orlando in 2 weeks time i've never met any of them face to face like some we just did an interview some like Jason we talked after as well you know but stayed stayed close um so i can't wait i'm looking forward to going there and finally shaking some hands and you know meeting the men behind the voices
1: He's such a Jason's an amazing. His wife is an amazing woman, as you know. But but Jason's such a, a, an incredible person. He's a very humble person too. And I got a challenge coin over here that he gave me um, two years ago when I when I met him. And he's just such a good guy. And he's and he's a great leader. And I'm I'm hoping to um, go to another event with him. But I'm so glad that. You know, if anybody's down in the Orlando area, go to the, the pre-registration thing because Jocko and Leif and the team, they're going to be in the lobby of that hotel. You don't have to have a ticket to the event to, you know, to go say hello before the event starts. And um, I'm, I'm hoping to, to see them when they come to Phoenix. I think in September they're going to be in Phoenix.
0: Beautiful. All right. Well then tell me about um 911 at Ease, kind of the you know, why why was it started, by who? And then for people listening, how can they access the the tools that you have?
1: Yeah, so so uh 911 at ease was the the at ease program uh originally as it was called where and at ease in military terms or just means relax, right? You know, you're standing at the position of attention and they say at ease. Which means relax, right? So they called it at ease. But uh, in 2014, uh, Sergeant Mike McGrew from the Santa Barbara Police Department um, had the idea of creating a, a fund so that they could pay for counseling services for Santa Barbara police officers. And that came out of a need uh, because Mike's son uh, ended his own life at the age of 18. Um, Mike's son had gotten cancer when he was 12 years old, the cancer came back three times. And when he was 18, he he took his own life. And Mike was working that day as a police officer, and he he heard people going to an address that he knew was his son's address, and he ultimately was at the scene of his his son's own suicide. Uh, He had been divorced twice, and um, now his son had uh, committed suicide, and he went to a grief counselor because he's like, okay, I need to go talk about the stuff that's been happening in my life. And when he went there to talk to that counselor, he not only talked about his son's death, he started to unload 20 years of police work on this counselor. And he had been a homicide detective for a long time. And during the counseling session, the counselor started crying. And for those of you that are listening, the counselor's not supposed to cry during the therapy session when they're there to, to help you. Well, he felt like he was consoling the therapist um, and kind of thought, well, maybe counseling's not for me. And what he ended up realizing is that he didn't go see a culturally competent clinician. He did, he actually he wasn't there seeing someone that understood how to to take care of a cop or a firefighter. So they created this fund and they started fundraising and they just wanted to help Santa Barbara police officers um, have a confidential way to go see some clinicians that had been vetted and they would pay for it. It was outside of the department purview, if you will. They they didn't have to use their insurance or the EAP or anything like that. Their fund would pay for it. And over time, the, the community um, donated more and more money to help them because not everybody wants to help you buy an armored vehicle or a new canine or some, you know, ex- big expensive equipment. But people are willing to invest in their officers and their firefighters. And that's where people really were donating because they, they saw that the Eddie's program was actually helping the police officers and the firefighters in their community. So they expanded that program out to basically where they were helping every first responder that needed help and their family in Santa Barbara County. Um, San Luis Obispo County, the next county up, had a couple of officer-involved shootings. They said, hey, could you guys help some of our people? And they sp- expanded up to slow. Then they came down to Ventura County a couple years ago, and that's how I found out about the program because they were, they were offering their services down here. And essentially what they where they are now, fast forward, is they're a, a 501c3 nonprofit that is now called 911 At Ease International. And uh, we have uh, four chapters in California. So we're in Kern County, Ventura County, Santa Barbara County, San Luis Obispo County. We are in Idaho, Minnesota, and the Navajo Nation in New Mexico. And we're, we're working to uh, expand out and um, go into some different states and, and create chapters. And the way we do it is we're funded through private donations. So we have the community, Um, makes donations. We apply for some grants. We also work with the police and fire associations uh, who contribute because those monies are directly benefiting their members. Um, But what, what I saw was that there was a gap where I was working is that we didn't have enough culturally competent clinicians in my area. And I wanted to kind of help be part of the solution to solve that problem. And so I work with um, helping to vet clinicians, get them enrolled in our program, we contract with them. And then the first responder, they just call our phone number or go on our website and uh, we connect them with a clinician and they don't pay a copayment. There's no fee for what they do and it's completely 100% confidential.
0: Beautiful. Well, I mean that's what we need. I've, I've had a friend uh Dustin Hawkins who's got a, a thing called Red Line Rescue that's just come out. But the more the more organizations like this that are around, the more chance we have of helping our responders. Because we talked about a barrier entry of young, you know, men and women in communities. Well sadly the barrier to entry to responders getting help is, you know, is finding the right counselor. And you the number of counselor in tears stories that I've heard Is you know, way, 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 way too many, you know. So these these culturally competent um, counselors is the big, big thing. People that understand what our job looks like, what our shift patterns look like, what our home life looks like, our our kind of vocabulary. So that when you offload, that person can relate and has heard it before, you know, and actually can give the right advice. Not the doctor that, you know, you're an athlete and you say your leg hurts and they tell you, oh, stop playing your sport. You know, it's the same kind of thing. You need to have the person that understands that profession and can can get us through that dark place and, and make us realize that we're going to grow and become even more resilient once we've gone through the process.
1: And the resilience is the is really the key word. I think for me is that you know, I, I, PTSD is not a life sentence or it shouldn't be. And I really believe that um, if you have someone that can help you get through that tough patch that you're dealing with and help you learn how to deal with it because it's probably not going to go away and you're going to, have it, but though it's the way you take care of yourself and you understand if, if you're having, um, you know, reaction to something, everybody's got something that can be a trigger for an emotion or or a feeling but having someone just like you said that understands how to do it and that gets and the people that we work they have a heart for first responders i don't care how good of a doctor they are they have to have a heart for wanting to help our first responders because um most of them um, do it for a reduced cost because we're a nonprofit uh you know, we run on donations and these people just want to help. And so it's great finding some, we've got some clinicians that used to be police officers or probation officers or their, their spouse is a first responder, or they grew up in a, you know, mom and dad were both cops or firefighters. And so they kind of grew up in our, in our life <clears throat> and they understand it and they get it and they want to help. And this is an opportunity for them to pay it forward.
0: Beautiful. Well, you mentioned San Luis Obispo. I saw, sadly, that we had an officer killed there yesterday. Another one, I think, is recovering. But, I mean, so they're going to probably need your services at the moment.
1: We we were on the scene last night. So we had a, 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 one of the doctors that we contract with that went out last night and, and led a debriefing for some of their personnel. And it's a, it's a terrible situation. They, they went to do a search warrant, and two officers uh, were struck by gunfire, and one of them was killed. And that's that's a department that um, we've helped before. And um, you know, another incident that happened, you may have heard of, is two weeks ago, a, a Bakersfield PD canine was killed uh, in a yard-to-yard search. And it's sad that the dog was killed, but the dog probably saved the officers from getting wounded because um, the guy shot at the dog, and it gave the officers time to react and and neutralize that threat. But we've been working out um, closely with with Bakersfield PD and Bakersfield Fire um, and, you know, to 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 help them with anything that they need. And but, yeah, man, yesterday when I was when I was on the walk, the carry the load walk, um, that's we started that walk at five o'clock and at five thirty is issues when that that shooting happened last night. So we're going to be there for them. And and their families, because it's not just about the first responder. That's that's one thing, you know, and the cities have responsibilities to pay for psychologists and and you have to clear people to get back for duty. That's great. Well, what about the the wives and the husbands that are terrified that their husbands or, or wives could have been killed at work or the kids that are scared because of the job that and the firefighters um, that treated, that tried to save that cop's life. You know, we're, we're here for all of those people that, that may need, um, to talk to somebody after that incident. And it's going to, it's going to take a little while. Um, it's got to settle in a little bit, but, but that's what we do, man. We, we, we help, we help those cops and firefighters.
0: Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for, you know, being part of the solution. I think, as you mentioned, it really should be a part of the departments that we work for. But, I mean, we found ourselves at this position where so many of the amazing men and women I have on here that are doing incredible things for the military, for the first responders, for civilians, took it upon themselves because it wasn't being done by, you know, these agencies that have big budgets. You know, so it's, again, reversing engineers so we can prioritize um, where can people find 911 at Ease online?
1: Yeah, please go to 911aei.org. So 911AdamEdwardIda.org, and if you want to support, you can make a donate donation. We uh, just started a 911 campaign, so people can donate nine dollars and eleven dollar nine dollars and eleven cents per month, and those dollars were directly used to to pay for a counseling uh, session for a first responder. You can donate more, but if you'd know if you like to do a small <clears throat> monthly donation, we'd love it if you any support, but 911AEI.org. And just appreciate the opportunity. I really enjoyed talking with you today.
0: Beautiful. Well, thank you. I've got a few closing questions if you've got time just to sneak yeah, them in. Excellent. No All right. The first one I'd love to ask, and I think I might know the answer already, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we've discussed or something completely different?
1: Let me think about that for a second. Okay, my favorite book in the whole wide world is Extreme Ownership: How How U.S. Navy SEALs Lead and Win. But another book that I I really love um, is The Go Giver, and that is about the, the 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 spirit of that book is that the more you give, the more you get. Love it. The I
0: haven't more heard you that one recommended. Beautiful. Thank you. All right. Well, then what about a a movie and or documentary?
1: Well, Forrest Gump is my favorite. Well, Top Gun is my favorite, favorite movie. But then Forrest Gump is right up there with it. I mean, if Top Gun is on TV, I'm watching it.
0: Brilliant. Any documentaries that you've enjoyed?
1: Yeah, I like watching mafia documentaries. There was just something that was on Netflix about uh, New York City. And uh, I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of it, but uh, I love that one.
0: Yeah, I remember There was a series, yeah? on, on Netflix. a series, yeah? It was a series. Yeah, a four
1: or five-part uh, series.
0: Okay, I haven't seen it yet. I've got to, got to look that up. All right, well then, next question. Is there a person you'd recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world?
1: Yes, Nako Nolan, LAPD cop. You know Nako? Um, we're
0: we're online friends, and it's funny because I just saw him on. I think it was a Netflix one as well about that one hotel where they found the body in the the roof. Um, yeah, the hotel.
1: Yeah, yeah, the the Cecil. The, yes, the documentary about the Cecil crimes uh, crime scene. Uh, the Cecil. Anyway, his name, his name is James, his real name is Jim McSorley, but he goes by Nako Nolan. And uh, Jimmy is a fascinating guy. He works fugitive recovery for LAPDs in, in an elite unit. And actually his his uh, girlfriend might even be more interesting. stacy has been a homicide detective for like 15 years with LAPD
0: beautiful maybe a maybe an interview with both of them together get them
1: both on. yeah man get them both
0: on brilliant all right i'm gonna have to do that then he's been on my radar for a long time and we've interacted but it's just it, I, I refer to this this project like a bingo machine like i'm just turning that that wheel and everyone's in there but it'll just spit out whoever kind of is right for that time so i guess this is my sign <laughs> all right well then uh the, the last question before we make sure everyone knows where they can find you what do you do to decompress these days
1: Man, I have to do a, a better job to decompress, but, um, you know, physical fitness is the best thing you can do. So my Peloton, um, is my decompression machine. I can't run anymore. I've had a couple back surgeries and running is just like a torture session. So I, I really enjoy, uh, getting on the Peloton and work the, the, if I could give anybody any advice, it'd be to do some kind of physical activity to flush those stress chemicals out of your body.
0: Beautiful. Have you ever heard of a back health routine called foundation training? No. So it was started by um, a chiropractor called uh, Dr. Eric Goodman. Um, one of his first clients was Lance Armstrong. So he, you know, the, the cyclist one, the downside is you do get yeah. shortened hamstrings and glutes and those, those kind of posterior chain muscles that they call them. I hurt my back as a firefighter about six years ago and you know wasn't going to go down the surgery and meds route i refused until at least i had ruled out pt started doing pt had limited amount of success and my Cairo actually told me about this routine so i found his little free video online started doing it and it was incredible how well it worked now it can work you know post-surgery as well i mean it's it's gonna align the muscles as, as well as possible to support your spine is how it works but I highly recommend looking it up, especially if you're cycling as well, because that is, in one respect, working against your posture. Even though it's a great, um, you know, exercise. So yeah, foundationtraining.com. I highly, highly recommend it.
1: I'm on it. I'm on it.
0: Beautiful. All right. Well, then the very last question. You 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 mentioned the website for 911 at ease. Are there any other places that people can reach out to you specific online?
1: Yeah, I'm on. I'm pretty easy to find. I'm on LinkedIn and Facebook. It's just my name, Jeff McGravy. Um, if you know, if you just type that into the search uh, bar. The Instagram I keep more personal for for myself, but yeah, face, Facebook and LinkedIn, Jeff McGreevy, I, I'd love to connect with with folks and uh, just continue to spread the word. I'm going to be in Idaho. Uh, we're starting a program next here shortly with uh, Boise PD and Nampa PD, and we're just excited to keep rolling this out. So I, I appreciate what you do and helping me helping us get the word out and i I hope you know that my story will, will help another first responder get through something that you know they may be dealing with